0: It is somewhat trendy today to speak of and consciously avoid overcommitment. In our hyper frenetic world with its zillions of options for work and play, so many people feel deluged, stretched to or even beyond their breaking point. A quick Google search of the term returns hundreds of articles and self-help resources with click-inducing titles like Why We Overcommit and How to Stop and A Formula to Stop You from Overcommitting. Curiously, though, a similar search for the word "undercommitment" offers no such useful registers. Apparently, it is not a popular topic for pop psychology outlets or social media influencers to cover. In this week's Torah portion, we are introduced to two fascinating and obscure topics, juxtaposed to one another. The first involves the Sota, a woman who has likely committed adultery and who faces the specter of public humiliation. If innocent, she is blessed magnificently, but if culpable she encounters a unique form of degradation, an exploding belly, so that others will be dissuaded by her example. Immediately after, we learn about the nazir, an individual who takes a voluntary vow to abstain from consuming wine or any grape products, to let his hair grow long, and to avoid ritual impurity. Without delving too deeply into the specific significance of either subject, I'd like to examine what the sages state about the back-to-back placement of the two sections. They explain that a person who witnesses the mortification of a sota, consequences of immoral behavior that perhaps was precipitated by alcohol abuse, should take a vow to avoid wine, intoxication, as a safeguard against going down the same road. Many commentators have posed a strong question. If someone sees this public scene clearly demonstrating the sota's consequences, wouldn't this person least require a vow to avoid the immorality that caused it? isn't the witnessing of the spectacle deterrent enough? The great ethical teachers explain that, in fact, although someone can observe a gruesome scene and be inspired to a particular behavior, without concrete steps this sentiment dissipates, and in fact, over time, cynicism may even set in its place. Reasonable enough, but I am still left wondering why such steps must take the form of a neder, a vow, a rather serious statement akin to a promise or giving one's word, which carries with it ritual consequences. In my work on campus, I often encounter students who, at least by their own account, would like to engage more in Jewish practice or study, but simply cannot commit. I do not doubt that, in some cases, the person is simply too stretched and the resistance is warranted. But other times, I wonder if this fear of over-committing actually holds people back from engaging in meaningful pursuits they really could manage. We're all familiar with the phrase that if you want to get something done, give it to a busy person. The irony, of course, is that he or she who seems the most unlikely to accommodate another responsibility actually is the one most likely to do so. In 2016, Shonda Rhimes released an iconic book called Year of Yes. I was struck by the Simon & Schuster description of this clever tome. With three children at home and three hit television shows, it was easy for Shonda to say she was simply too busy. But in truth, she was also afraid. And then, over Thanksgiving dinner, her sister muttered something that was both a wake up call and a call to arms You never say yes to anything. Shonda knew she had to embrace the challenge. For one year, she would say yes to everything that scared her. Perhaps this explains the otherwise confounding Midrashic teaching that the Torah was given with the mountain held over the heads of the Jewish people, compelling them to accept it, an event we just marked this past week on Shavuot. God, who created human nature, understood that if we don't feel we must do something, we often won't. How then can we discern in any given situation whether our reservations are authentic or simply a function of fear or indolence? A couple of possible strategies. First, if I reject an opportunity and afterwards come to resent Or denigrate it. That may be an indication that deep down I recognize what I should be doing and a defense mechanism is kicking in to protect my ego. This reaction results from cognitive dissonance, the psychic stress I experience when my actions belie my inner convictions. Another helpful thought experiment suggested by my friend and colleague, Rabbi Josh Livingston, involves imagining what I would advise a close friend in a similar situation. If I would encourage them to stretch their scope of duties, then maybe I should consider doing so as well. In this vein, we might suggest a cute play on the words of ethics of our fathers, that one should acquire for yourself a friend. Instead, we could read it as acquire yourself as a friend, that we can pursue a more objective inner voice by counseling ourselves as we would a dear companion. And finally, we might ask ourselves, if the commitment in question presented itself at this very moment, would I embrace it or would I quickly escape? By pruning the scenario of any external considerations, travel, inertia, and the like, we can isolate the dilemma itself and access greater clarity. Certainly, we must live in balance, fulfill our existing responsibilities before accepting new ones, and monitor our emotional state. At the same time, we can remain cognizant of just how short life is, how precious is each fleeting moment, and how meaningful commitments can elevate our time here from the pedestrian to the truly sublime. Shabbat Shalom.